right, so as you can see, we are doing law and worldviews or worldviews and laws. I saw this quote uh, this week from C.S. Lewis, and so I thought, you know what, I'll put that up there, and I just, I just liked it. One, because I like C.S. Lewis, and he just says really cool stuff in a really cool way, and um, so that's good. Uh, so anyway, so let's get going, right? The law is the study of ordinances designed to help citizens peacefully coexist, Okay peacefully coexist, right? The dichotomy of the law is in order to be free, we have to establish and obey laws that limit our freedom. And again, that's where that kind of that balance really comes in. You know, we had a, a few weeks ago, I put up a, a, an image of sphere sovereignty, of Abraham Kuyper's sphere sovereignty, and it's basically it rests up in two kingdoms. And you end up with, there's a balance in all of these, how all of these spheres work. And if we just look at it from the biblical perspective, there's three institutions that God has ordained. There's the, there's the marriage or the family institution, right? There's the institution of the church and there's the institution of government. And now those are three God-ordained institutions and they're each called and designed to fulfill a certain role and purpose within God's created order. And as long as each one of those spheres or institutions work according to God's design, you know, then we have this balance between peace and law and harmony and unity that exists. But if one sphere begins to, either one, it fails to fulfill its role that God has ordained them to fulfill, then another sphere is, is, must pick that up. And then that sphere becomes larger and more influential. Or you have a sphere that this literally takes on a role that it's never intended to take on. Again, we can, you can think about the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church back certainly in the 8, 9, 11, 12, 13, 1400s. Man, it just literally took on the role of, of government and the church. And so it absorbed this whole thing that it was never intended to have. And so you end up with this abuse of power that takes place. And again, so we can see that whether, again, it's a, whether it's just a government that's taking on more role than it is. And that's this idea of sphere sovereignty. But there's this balance that, that takes place within a law because with each law that's passed, there's a freedom that's lost. There's a, and, and we have to accept a, a part of that only in that to control, we have to have something. And again, so a law is not bad in and of itself, but it can be used poorly, or some laws are bad just as they're designed to be. Um, so, but again, so there's this balance of this law and freedom. Too much law and it eliminates too much freedom. If you have too much freedom, then you don't have enough orderliness and peace within a society or a culture because we have that sinful nature. That's not on your notes, and I got off track there, so I apologize. Anyway, a society with no law leads to chaos and collapse. A society with no law leads to chaos and collapse. So laws that are just will lead to a healthy society. Laws that are just will lead to a healthy society. So then what are just and unjust laws? There's two types of laws, just and unjust Right? Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. Okay? And again, he wrote The City of God, a book. It's a, uh, anyway, and then Martin Luther King said, a just law is a man, I love this, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. 
An unjust law is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. And that came out of his letters out of the Birmingham jail. And if you've never read that, man, I would encourage you to go and read that. It's, man, it's, 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 it's amazing. And this is where this comes from. And so at least that's where I got it from. He may have said it someplace else, but I love that part. And then Tacitus, he's just, I love the guy just for these quotes that you're getting ready to see. All right? He's a Roman historian. He was a senator. And this is what he says. He says, the more numerous laws, the more corrupt the government. You know, I was teaching down at a university in Honduras, and, and I just asked him, I said, how many laws you guys got on your books? And these were law students. These were law students. How many laws you guys got? They had no idea. And I said, don't feel bad because I, I don't know. We don't know how many laws we've got. And then I showed this, and it's like, oh, my gosh, what does this say? we got more laws than we even know what to do with. We don't even know how many are out there. We don't even know what most of them cover. The more corrupt the government. I mean, like, oh, yeah, the government, the government, until you see this one, right? The state where corruption abounds, laws must be very numerous. And so not only does the government become corrupt, but it's because the people are corrupt. And to control corruption... We need laws, right? Formerly, we suffered from crimes. Now we suffer from laws. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of get a bad feeling towards laws after you read these quotes from Tacitus, right? You're like, man, okay, I got you. We suffer from laws now. Anyway, today's laws are geared more toward expediency and less towards morality. And this becomes a pivotal point literally in the rest of our discussion for the night. A law that's designed for expediency and not for morality. So the study of law, it asks the question, what constitutes orderly and just governance? And again, because we live in a post-postmodern world, we always have to get definitions because we can't assume we're all talking about the same thing. You may use the same words, we just don't use the same definitions. And so we're going to define some things, right? So here, order focuses on ensuring safety and efficiency in society. That's order. And then justice deals with reasonable, fair, and equal rules, ensuring that members of society enjoy the goods and the rights to which they are entitled. Which leads us to, well, what's legal and versus what's right? Again, another good question. Utilitarianism says what is legal is what is right. If it's legal, it's right. What ought to be legal is whatever ensures happiness and reduces suffering for the greatest number of people. That's utilitarianism right there. What brings the greatest amount of happiness, reduces the greatest amount of suffering for the greatest number of people. That's utilitarianism. So whatever is legal is what is right. Others will say what is moral is what is right. What ought to be illegal is behavior that opposes morality. So let's look at Nazi Germany, right? All that Germany did under Hitler's reign was legal. There was no law in Germany that was broken. <laughs> under the reign of Hitler. 
where he just literally, he got all of the Jewish people and he put them into one neighborhood. And then he built a wall around those neighborhoods and controlled the access going in and going out. It was all legal. They made sure they passed the laws that this would be legal to do. And then each time they just kept pushing that envelope until they were shipping them off the death camps and it was all legal. There was nothing illegal about what Germany did according to their laws, utilitarianism. Hitler claimed that this is the greatest good for the greatest number of people is to do this, utilitarianism, right? So, but the majority of the world, when they saw this, the, the German law, it was an abuse of clear standards of right and wrong. They said it was a crime against humanity. That's the rest of the world saying this, right? So we're getting to the end of World War II. So, you know, how can they make this claim? Well, you know, they had, starting in 1945, they had the Nuremberg War Trials where they were going to try the Nazi leaders, the guards, and everybody else in these horrific crimes for these crimes. But before they could even start the trial, they had to answer that question. How can we even say that what they did was wrong? What's our moral foundation for saying that's wrong and that's right? Because right? we can say intrinsically we know. We all know that. Where does that come from? Right? And those, literally that was the struggle. Before they could even start this, they had to decide on what grounds are we doing this? On what grounds? So on one side of these... Nuremberg trials, the people involved, you have legal, positivi legal positivism, right? Which believed laws were created by human authorities and there is no connection between law and morality. So if laws are created by human authority and Germany created their laws, well, then that's legal and it's right. So you cannot try the war criminals on this ground of legal positivism, but that was the idea that was driving all legal scholars, law schools, and everything at the time, was legal positivism, but we can't try them on that, right? The other side said there's natural law, and it believed that laws are based on an internal code of morality that's found in all people. And again, that's that idea, well, we all know it's wrong, well, again, that's what you have to come back to. I mean, we can ignore that question and just say, well, we all know it's wrong. Hang on a second, Trey. We, we all know that it's wrong, but what becomes that foundation for saying that that is right or wrong? Trey? Well, again, because it's not an issue, if, if it's a law, it's morally right. That's what legal positivism says, whether, whether it's within our intrinsic being or not, right? Legal positivism says, the law says it's okay for me to steal your car. It, then it's, 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 not a, it's not a moral issue. It's a legal issue. And as long as the law says it, then it's Okay. That's legal positivism. But you don't get this intrinsic right or wrong. 
that we all know these things, right? And then we can act upon those things, and then we can try people on these things unless we have the natural law. And so that, literally that was the battle that was taking place before you could even begin the Nuremberg trials. Before you can even, they had to settle upon this. Yeah, Ron. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's ex- that's a, that's an example. I mean, and then you've got, um, of course, you, you, you got gay marriage. I mean, you've got all kinds of stuff. You, got, you can go back to Jim Crow laws. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people said were legal, right? But in tr- we know in our soul that's not right. But legal positivism says that's the law. Okay? So we got the natural law and we got legal positivism. And those become the struggles of what we're dealing with. And that, that is the dilemma of these opposing views. That's the dilemma of these opposing views. So now let's move into secularism as a worldview and how they look at the law, right? Laws influenced by materialism, naturalism, and evolution. Secularists reject God. Let's stop there. The moment you reject God, you now begin this downward slide away from objective morality, objective truth. And there's no way to get back to that apart from accepting God, receiving God. And again, and I'm just saying, I'm not talking about the point of, oh, you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm just to the point of we need to recognize that there is this supernatural being that created all things. Right? And until we can get to that point, we lose everything else just goes. Rejecting God. So everything that we're going to talk about, literally everything that we've been talking about, let me just for 18, 15 weeks right now, right? Stems from this. It stems from rejecting God. Right? And so now when we reject God, we reject objective morality. And for the purpose of law, when we reject objective morality, we reject historical precedent. Okay, so we're still in it from the law perspective. And because they reject historical uh, precedent, they're going to reject what's called common law. They reject common law. Common law claims that an action is legal unless it's specifically prohibited unless it's specifically prohibited. And I was just trying to think about a few ideas. You know, one is, remember when, because I know everybody's got these right now, you know, the self-driving car? You, you just get in and you put, and it just drives you, right? You guys all got one. And the, literally the idea was, this is one of these things where the technology has outstripped our ethics to deal with it. Because I'm in my self-driving car, not driving it, and it's driving, and an accident happens, and it's within my realm of influence. I'll just say that. So who do you hold responsible for that? Well, I was just in the seat. And so, and so do you, is it the person in the seat? Is it the manufacturer of the car or the software? 
I mean, who, how, who are you holding responsible for this? Or better yet, let's, let's just take it to this idea, right? Artificial intelligence. Man, we're still trying to even figure out what that is. And we certainly, we, we got ideas about the harm that's going to come from it. Who are you holding responsible for this? The technology is outstripping our ethics to deal with it. And so if it's not specifically prohibited, now we're getting back to that. So back to the self-driving car, literally states had to go back and say, you know what, this is a problem when we don't have a law to deal with it. And so states individually are passing laws that will say, okay, this is, we think this is the best way to handle it. You know, we're going to, it'll be the owner of the car. It'll be the manufacturer. It'll be, you know, whatever it is. And they've got to decide that because they've got to create a law to do that. Yeah. Are you going to bring logic and reason into this again, Jeff? Okay. All right. Because that's not allowed. That's not allowed. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. And they ask, you know, if you ask the question, what, what, what's going to make the world a better place? Yeah. Kill all the humans. Yeah. I mean, it's. Well, certainly not, because it has no moral foundation. That is, it's, it, you know, it's not working from a moral foundation. And again, that gets back to this idea that if it's not prohibited, it's not illegal. And so we have to have a law that says, you know what, if your self-driving car wrecks and it's your car, you're responsible somehow. And so you, somehow you got to figure that out. But then courts, back to the next point, courts make decisions based on case law or prior decisions reached in the court of law through common sense and reason. See, they put that in here. They just didn't know that we were going to get to post-postmodernism and where that's not allowed. So anyway, so they reject historical precedent. Keep in mind, right, evolution is one of the points that the secularism follows. And we're going to get to this quickly, but I'll just bring it up now. And that is, it's, there's, Right? There's humanity, there's human evolution as the body evolves physically and biologically. But then there's this whole idea that we evolve morally. We evolve morally in our evolutionary process. And so what was morally right, you know, I used to have to go back 100 years or 200 years to do that. Now I only need to go back like five years. Right? So what was morally right five years ago is now, not only is it not neutral, it's morally wrong because we've evolved, because we know more now. We're smarter now than what we were five years ago, 50 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And so we practice, Lewis calls this idea chronological snobbery, and that's not in your notes, but it's this idea that because we're so much superior than the past cultures, we can take our cultural view and we impose it upon everybody else and we can say they were wrong, which allows us to have this evolutionary process in our moralities. Trinae. You see, Trinae, you just, see, you, you, see, you're talking logic and reason again. <laughs> I, you know, look, 15 weeks, and I don't know how many times I've said that, right? You, you, it, I mean, you think you can bring, lo and we should be able to bring logic and reason into this. Anyway, um, 
common law. So, uh. Secularists believe that humanity is evolving, therefore we know more than people in the past, and that's just what I was saying, so we can move on, right? Newer or current thinking is better than precedent or older ideas. And so again, even though that there's precedent in old case law, we've got more figured out than they do now, so we're going to sit there and just decide our own. And case law has no bearing on what we do. So I'm kind of curious. It's, there's, probably, there's probably not any. I'm like, what are they teaching in law school now? If precedent and previous case law no longer matters, I wonder what they learn. Man, I remember, I was, again, I, I degree in criminal justice, and we had a class on criminal law, and you had to learn like 500 laws, and, and it was just insane. And, and, and I'm like, well, what a waste of time that was. We don't need that precedent anymore. And so, again, it's how do, what, Al? Uh, well, I'll, I'll, all right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know what? When we get to the postmodern piece, we're going to answer that. We're going to answer the how how they do that. Uh, yeah, Doug. Yeah. Well, what you. Yeah. Well, and that's where you get into that idea. Once you begin to reject God, who becomes because if, if there's this if there's God, he's the ultimate authority. Once we reject God, somebody's got to be the ultimate authority. Who gets it? The one who has the most power, the one who has the biggest stick gets that authority. And so at that point in time, again, logic, reason, experience, it all goes out the door. I just need my stick. So legal positivism, right? Secularists align themselves under this banner of legal positivism. No surprise there, hopefully, right? So the law, the law is not tied to morality. It's determined by those in power, right? And this is what we were just talking about. And those in power determine what is right and wrong. Again, Gay marriage, transgenderism, Jim Crow laws, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to put out there, it's tied to that. And so what we say is right today, we can say is wrong tomorrow if you're the one in power. 
if you're the one in power, then you get to determine what's right and what's wrong. Right? So if the government gives rights, the government can take your rights. And again, you know, as I'm sitting there talking to, this was several years ago, and again, I was in Honduras, I'm talking to these law students in Honduras, and, you know, they, they, uh, they developed a, their first constitution, like 1985, you know, because they've just gone through all kinds of military takeovers and regimes and that kind of stuff, and so they got their uh, first democratic system in 1985, and so they developed their first constitution. And it was modeled much after, after the American constitution. So this was 2018, 2017. I was, I was talking with these students and I asked them, I said, how many times has your constitution been changed since 1985? And they were like, I don't know. It's been changed like 16 times. And they were like, yeah. 16 times. And I said, because the government is your power and they get to determine what's right and wrong. I said, the only way that you can rightly live this out is that you have someone in power that is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, and unchanging. Because then it never changes. Because he gets it right the first time. And he has the power to make it right. And that's exactly what the students were doing. They were just like, why? And I said, that's why our rights don't come from the government. They come from God. They're unchanging rights. And they will never change. Because our God never changes. And he never gets it wrong. But if the government is the sole authority. They can give you rights and they can take your rights as they wish. Right? And so if there's a group that's out of favor with the governmental power, the group can be crushed by the brute force of the state and the state is within the legal rights to do so. There's nothing illegal about it because the state gives you the rights and the state takes, takes your rights away. That's what Nazi Germany did. Yeah, Jeff. Well, there, there, as far as, again, there can be other definitions of rights, but again, you, those are changing definitions. Unless those rights come from God, then it becomes an unchanging standard. But if we reject God, then the only place to get your rights from is from the one in power. That's, the only, that's, that's your only other option. Because if you don't have that and we're just, all of us are exercising my right, your right, then we're at the chaos, right? And we know people will give up their freedom for peace and safety. We know that. We've seen that. And so when your safety becomes more important than your freedom, you'll give up your freedom to keep your safety. The problem is, is when you give up your freedom to keep your safety, you lose both. Not overnight, but you end up, you lose both. And so that's what happens with that right. And again, once the Constitution becomes a living, breathing document, 
then that means it changes and evolves over time. And then the meaning of rights just takes on a whole new meaning. And you see that evolutionary process come back in, only it's not biological, it's legal. So constitutional ideas, self, truth is self-evident. All humanity is created equal by a creator who gives unalienable rights and just powers derived from the consent of the government. Yes, sir. Yeah, unalienable rights, those are the rights that God gives. Is that a right of choice? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what you're asking. I'm sorry. Unalienable. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, you can. You have free will. Yes, everybody has free will. But that doesn't relinquish our rights and responsibilities that we have within his uh, ordained institutions. And again, just as a right, I, I'm a father and I'm a husband, right? And within God's institution of marriage, I, I have certain rights and responsibilities. I don't have to meet those, but I will be held accountable for those by God. But you do have that free will to exercise that or not, yes. Uh, these constitutional and biblical ideas are considered archaic ideas of the past, and they should have no bearing on our current thinking today. Again, all this is under secularism. So then we move into Marxism, which seems, in this case, resembles a lot of secularism, right? Naturalism, materialism, evolution. Only for them, right? Remember, Marxism is an idea of economic policies or economic inequalities there. And everything's driven by that. Now, at the root of Marxism is atheism, and that drives everything. But for them, their big idea is, is an economic policy that's taking place with Marxism. And then, right, when this is utopian communism is reached, there's no need for any laws. It's all kumbaya. And there's no need for laws because we will all self-govern ourselves and we'll all do what's right for the best for the state. Man, what an idea. The problem with that is, is you can't point to anybody that's ever done it. It's like, where has that actually worked? And you, you just can't. There's no place that that has actually worked. Right? And so... Until we get there, the Communist Party will stay in power and they'll make the laws on behalf of the people or the proletariat, right, which is the working class. So then you have the proletariat law. It's created by the officials. It's to promote the welfare of the working class over the interest of the owners of the bourgeoisie. In American terms, that's the 99% against the 1%. So Marxists believe proletariat law will bring about a peaceful utopia of harmony and unity where crime is only a concept of the distant past. And man, how appealing is that if you're in a crime-ridden place? Wow. Marxism is going to deliver that. Point of consideration, man, Marxist governments have deliberately killed more human beings than any other worldview in the 20th century alone. Literally, I mean, the number is up there of 100 million people under Marxist regimes. Yeah, legally. Again, all of that is legally done. Because, again, under the idea of Marxism is, man, if it's progress for the party, it's good. And if you're hindering the progress for the party, you're bad. 
which means we get to eliminate you. We'll either force you into conversion or just into the early grave. And again, you only need to look to Venezuela as, a, as an example of that. Once a thriving company, country, oh my gosh, within 10 years it became a third world country. It's a, it's a train wreck of, of untold proportions. So that's Marxism. So now we look at postmodernism. Right? They deny any connection between law and objective morality. So we have that certainly for secularism. We have that for Marxism. We have that for postmodernism. So it's that common thread of objective morality because if there's an objective morality, there's a moral law giver. If there's a moral law, there's a moral law giver. Somebody had to grant those moral laws outside of the government, outside of those that are in control. They view the laws that came from Christianity and the Enlightenment as unjust. Right? They believe the purpose of the law is to enforce objective standards, but to uncover and remediate various forms of oppression. We need to root out all oppression. You know, the irony of that is we can create oppression to root out oppression. And that's okay if the right people are creating the oppression. They see objective standards as components of white male domination and that subjective standards are supposedly favored by women and minorities. And that's in postmodernism. They believe in social construct constructionism, which says that humans construct a model of reality based on their own subjective experiences and language. And now we come back to what Al was asking and talking about. It's my experience that determines what is right and wrong. And again, if I'm just a little guy on the street, you know, my experience only affects me. But if I'm somebody in a position of power, then my experience, it not only affects me, but it's going to affect you. The problem with experiences, everybody has experiences, but we don't always understand our experiences completely. Right? And we see this idea, you know, God always, you know, if God's such a good God, why does evil exist? You know, well, one, you admit that evil exists, so that's the first thing. That's a, that's a good step, is that we recognize that's there, that there's evil, but we blame God for it. Right? And Adam and Eve in the garden, right? That's where the blame game started. I mean, it's nothing, I mean, we keep talking about postmodernism like it's some new thing. Man, trust me, it's Genesis chapter 3, right? It's been around a long time. And so it's like, it's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent, right? It's, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so you get these subjective experiences, and we get to blame other people for the bad that comes into my life, but not the good. But if we've rejected God, who do we blame all of these bad experiences on? Anybody but me. Anybody but me. That's who we blame. But I may not read my experiences right. And if I certainly don't see my own responsibility in my experience, I'm not going to read the experience right. And so even though it's happened to me, doesn't mean I have complete understanding about what has taken place. Experiences. 
For someone to claim objective knowledge is simply a power play to gain advantage over another group of people. This is called oppression. It becomes a power play. Language is a power play. Remember, under postmodernism, everything's about power. Everything's about oppression. And who has the power is who gets to oppress. That's postmodernism. That's the very root of it. I was going to tell a story, but I don't know if it... And no, I'm not. That'll just get us. No, that'll go too far off. Anyway, critical legal studies is a tool that postmodernism uses to expose <clears throat> oppressive power structures. This is an idea that I mean, it got to start in the early or the mid '70s. UCLA within their law school, um, and out of critical legal studies is where we get the idea of uh, critical race theory. But all of those, you know, we want to treat them as a standalone, but they're not. Literally, these things come out of what's called critical theory. And, it came out, and you can do some more research on this on your own. I encourage you. I don't have time to talk about it all. But it came out of the Frankfurt School in Germany, uh, mid to late 1800s. And out of critical theory, and again, it's the same idea of oppression. There's oppressors, there's oppression, right? And we need to root that out. And out of that, we get critical legal studies, we get critical race theory, we get critical feminism theory, we get critical queer theory. There's all of these critical theories, but they're all just birthed out of this critical theory that started in the Frankfurt School. And again, it's worth studying. Um, we just don't have time to cover it now. Uh, so tools, this, this tool, critical legal studies, uh, it deconstructs laws in order to determine the bias and the oppression that was built into the laws. Now, here's the thing. What we want to be careful about that is to sit there and say, that's never happened. And in fact, there have been biases and problems that are built into laws. It really has happened. It really does happen. And it's really going to happen. Literally, the whole Nazi thing that we talked about, that was a bias that was built into their laws. And we certainly saw that within chattel slavery when you see that, or the Jim Crow era laws. Those were things that were built into laws for this very purpose. But under critical legal studies, all laws contain that. All laws. And that's where we want to be careful. It's just like we can't sit there and throw none of that because there are issues because there's humans involved with it. That's what we have to recognize. And it's that idea of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, you know, these cliches here. And um, we just have to recognize that not all laws are oppressive, right? But some laws can be and have been. So laws are not about justice. Again, this is under postmodernism, but it's a political power. Right? Postmodernists are not opposed, but they're not opposed to use political power to gain power from the oppressors. Now, that political power, that's nasty business and you shouldn't have anything to do with it, except for I'm going to use it to gain power. I'm going to get it to root out oppression. Right? To sit there and talk about consistency within a worldview, you would never bring that into the postmodern conversation. That would be an oxymoron. Um, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, Supreme Court Justice, said, I accept the position that to judge is an exercise of power. The judge is not, right? Remember, when we talk about a court of law, it's determined truth. 
and what is right and what is wrong. She accepts this as a position as an exercise of power. There's a difference. There's a difference. So how did we get here? Right? You had the Enlightenment during the 16th and 17th centuries, the 1800s. And this uh, author left of Yale Law School. He's no longer there, but anyway, retired in the mid-80s. He said, once the Enlightenment began to deny the reality of divine creation and revelation, the basis of law began to erode. Again, that's back to that very first PowerPoint that I was talking about. We need to hang on to that idea. Um, He also said, unless there's a God who is himself goodness and justice, there can be no ultimate moral basis for law. And again, that's that idea. When we begin, you know, we're talking about all of these things under legal positivism. It's how do you get a foundation for what's right and wrong that is consistent and right and fair and just? It's only if there is a God who is good and just. And once you reject that, you reject all foundations for calling anything right or wrong, good or bad, evil or wicked. You lose that foundation, and it just becomes back to who's in power. They get to say that. They get to say that. So consequences of detaching from a moral compass... Right? The loss of moral authority in the law removes restraints on individual behavior. All right? People are oblivious to the connection between the loss of moral authority and the law that social chaos and that social chaos that results from it. Man, we'll talk about it all day long. The news media, oh, well, we'll, we'll blame the Democrats, we'll blame the Republicans, we'll blame Putin. We'll, you know, whoever, again, back to whoever we can blame, right? It's always an us and them type of thing. But we don't get back to the the loss of moral authority, of moral restraint. The loss of moral authority in the law means government is reduced to utilitarian procedures. We're just going to do what's going to bring peace and happiness for the greatest number of people. They become little more than traffic cops and not very good ones at that. The loss, of, the, the loss of a moral basis for law means we can no longer engage in moral debate. We can't even have the discussions anymore. It's who screams the loudest? Who has the bigger stick? Issues are not resolved by principle, but by power. The loss of moral authority in the law means we have forfeited the rule of law and reverted to arbitrary human human rule. And man, when you lose the rule of law, you lose any form of restraint that you would have on society. And all this comes from How Now Shall We Live, Chuck Colson. Um, and so there's this, and so I, I got a couple videos, and we, I think we, we certainly have time for them. And it's, um, you know, you may have heard this. Well, you can't legislate morality, right? You know, people stand on that, but the, oh, you, you can't legislate morality, Kevin. You can't do it. And you just have to chuckle about that because it's like every law legislates morality. Every law does. And so a little video on this very idea, should morality be, be legislated? And this is what, what would you say.com. Simple 
point. Um, whose morality are we going to legislate? Who's going to decide what's right and wrong? And again, you know, depending on which kingdom you're residing in, right, answers that question. Okay, so Islam and the law, right? Islam teaches that Allah reveals only his law and not himself, right? In Islam, Allah is not a personal, intimate God. Uh, Islam's divine law is called Sharia, and it's the moral and legal code that, go- code that governs everything in the lives of Muslims, right? You know, we would turn around and, and oh, you know, there's the church and there's the state and, and there's the family, right, and the institutions. Man, it's in Islam, it's the church, the mosque. Anyway, it's all one. There is no separation in any of that. And that's that idea of Sharia law. It's not separated. It all falls under that legal code called Sharia. And so aspects of Sharia are brutal, right? The killing of homosexuals, adulterers, apostates, and blasphemers. Marital rape is condoned. Amputation of limbs for theft is commanded. The whipping, selling into slavery, and oppression of non-converts is demanded, as is the non-negotiable duty of war against infidels. And it was just, didn't you send me that? Were you the one that sent me that thing? It was, it was talking about Islam and just how, how it's good. And she, she got an advertisement in the mail, and it was just saying how um, Islam supports women's rights. And so you're like, and then I'm, I'm preparing for this, and it's like, I wonder whose experience we're talking about, Right? Yeah, whose perspective? And, and again, it's how things certainly get framed up, but it was just, anyway, so Islam is, it's Sharia. That's their law. Now, Christianity. Right, the biblical worldview believes that the divine law is based on God's character and nature. You know, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, and you'll probably hear it a couple more times before we end in the next few weeks. Man, if you just want a strong foundation in your faith in the biblical walk for life, is do a study of the attributes of God do a doctrinal study on the attributes of God, man, it will. It doesn't guarantee that you're not going to stray away from the faith or your kids aren't going to stray away from the faith, but man, it gives you this solid foundation to work from because that's the only thing that is unchanging. And it's from everlasting to everlasting is to do a study on the attributes of God. So certain truths are built into God's law. Humans are created in God's image. You may reject that. You may disbelieve that, but it doesn't change that. It doesn't change it. You can deny the image of God in you. You just can't run from it. You just can't run from it. Humans are fallen inherently sinful. Again, those other three views, the first three, secularism, Marxism, and postmodernism, you're all good people. You're all basically good. Christianity, no, you're not. And human government is divinely ordained institution. And I kind of talked about that, and this is the verses that you can find that at. Um, so then we move from general revelation, to which gives us natural law. General, general revelation is what we intuitively know through our conscience. All people have this natural sense of right and wrong. And we kind of open that up with talking about the Nuremberg trials. Uh, Romans 2.14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. It's just literally part of our DNA that God has put in us to know right and wrong. 
We just know that some things are morally wrong. That's Romans 1, 26 through 32. So general revelation is the basis for natural law. Uh, William Blackstone had said, man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator. As man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should in all points conform to his maker's will. This will of his maker is called the law of nature. You know, we just, you just look at the world, right? You know, everybody's lost their minds. And it's like, all we got to do is share this truth with them and, and it's going to be okay. Now, we are to share this truth. I mean, please, please hear me, right? No less than that, we are to share this truth. But they're not, oh, mate, I, thanks for sharing that. I can just turn everything around. Right? I can't remember the verse my wife was sharing this with me. And it said, man, in the last days, God will send a deluding force upon the people. Right? Their hearts want to believe the lie, and God will just allow them to continue to believe the lie, even when the truth is spoken to them. Even when the truth is spoken to them. Things are going to get better? Not unless there's just a supernatural intervention. But we need to be faithful with what God puts before us today. So, the natural law gives a general outline of right and wrong. Uh, special revelation, the Bible, it gives us specific ways of what is right and wrong. And again, so through general revelation, we get this general idea. We get this natural law that's given to us, but we get specific things through God's Word. All right? Okay, the goal of a Christian law is not to enforce people to convert to Christianity but to stabilize society by ensuring that the innocent are protected and the guilty are punished. And I'm not going to go too much into this tonight because it'll bring it up next week. You know, but you get this. Everybody's trying to force the rights on everybody else. But as followers of Christ, that's not an option for us. You know, you got this thing, you know, Christian nationalism, you know, however you define it, it's, you know, you got all this stuff that's out there. But man, God has not called us to live under a theocracy. Has not. And we're not to force that. So whether you get into Islamic force in their religion or you get through, right, the Catholic Church or whatever, man, that's not how we're to live. We are not to live that way. When society is just, people have a big view of God. When society is unjust, people have a small view of God. And I could have added, and a big view of people or some people. Right? So what you think about God is the most important thing you can think. And most people think something about God. They either deny Him, which is thinking about Him, or they have some form of idea of what they think God is. But what we think about Him defines everything else. Man, as followers of Christ, our goal is not to grab power and impose our views. It's to act through principled persuasion and responsible participation. And so if you're going to be here next week, I'd highlight that and bring this back. Because next week we talk about politics. Okay? And so I think I'm going to go ahead and start out with this one too. Just to remind everybody, at least it was here, and if you're sitting next to somebody next week that's not here, said, hey, read this and sign this line. And it... Yeah, it is. It is. And again, that's uh, Chuck Colson. I count that how nice are we live. And I thought, my gosh, that... 
is the Christian life of persuasion and influence. Okay? Um, and so I just, I just love it. And so, again, this is not imposing our religious ideas, but it's a foundation that's rooted in rational moral principles and evidence that the protection and the promotion of the traditional family promotes well-being of society. And, again, we need to influence it. That's our role. Again, every, right, the family has its role. The church has its role. Government has its role, right? And in some places at all, it crosses over and it intersects. But it's important, certainly from sphere sovereignty or certainly from God's ordained institution, is that one role doesn't usurp the power of another. And, you know, that's an idea that's just oblivious to most of the culture. But it should not be to us. It should not be to us. Um, you've got that link. You know what? This is, this is it's, it's about six minutes long. I'm going to play it if you need to leave. Leave. I just think it's important because we're talking about truth, and that literally that's what it comes down to. When you reject God, you reject truth. And so, will this definitions matter? Because you hear that a lot from me too. We end where we always end. Look, if we are not actively building a biblical worldview into our lives, you're going to passively absorb a fall one. And again, it's active. You have to play your role in this. You have to do your part in this. Man, this is not a day for lazy Christians. I mean, there's never been a day for lazy Christians. Okay, not like the last week it was okay, but now it's not. No, it's, there's, it, it's just we do not live in the day and time where lazy Christians are going to get God's work done. He's called us to be faithful. He's called us to work. He's called us to be diligent. He's called us to be truthful, kind, and compassionate. And that takes work, and it takes prayer, and it takes studying the Word, and it takes living the Word. Um, we have to actively work at it. Man, it's exciting times. Because you know what? Again, I was just talking this morning with the students. I mean, you can deny and you can come up with all kinds of reasons why you don't trust in Jesus. But that doesn't change the truth of the matter. That Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, died on the cross for your sins and mine. And that only through him do we have eternal life. Only through him will we have human flourishing. That's it, period. You can receive it. You can reject it. You just can't change it. Go. Be faithful with what God puts before you this week. Come back next week. Prayed up. All right. Pray for me. Right. We'll talk about politics. And then the last week, May 17th, that's the last time we'll meet, we're going to look at uh, the He Gets Us campaign. It's, uh, we won't look at all of them. We, uh, time won't permit us to look. There's like 14 commercials. But anyway, I just did this with some high school students on Sunday night. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was encouraging. Uh, we had a good time with it. And so um, it, it's, a, it's, a pr- it's a productive exercise. Let me close this in prayer. And then we'll go. Blessed Father, Lord, we do thank you that, Lord, you are the unchanging, loving God. And, Lord, you, you do not do things by trial and error, but that you are holy. You are all-knowing. You are all-powerful. You are unchanging. And, Lord, our trust is in you and your character and your nature and your Son, Jesus Christ. And, uh, Lord, may we, may we draw hope from that. May we draw courage from that, O oh Lord. May we 
discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, for this is good and right, both in this life and the life to come. And so, Lord, may we be faithful with what you put before us. Lord, let us be diligent in praying and being in your word and extending your kingdom wherever we go. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we ask these things. Amen.